First Kings chapter 21. First Kings 21. We are getting to the end of First Kings. The whole theme of First Kings is covenants and character. We're, we're looking at the, the agreements that men made with God and how they handled the being, whether they were faithful or not, looking at the good character and the bad character of different individuals during this time period, and then we're contrasting that with God's covenant, how He's always faithful to His covenant and His character, which is glorious. So as we've been looking through this, we've been studying King Ahab lately, and at this point, by the time we get to chapter 21, God has just miraculously delivered Israel from the Syrian army, not once, but twice. And despite that, Ahab is fuming with God at the end of chapter 20. Why? Because God dared correct him because he sought his own prophet by not putting a deserving person to death, the king of Syria. When I respond to God's correction by stubbornly hardening my heart, protesting my innocence and God's unfairness, it puts me in a place where I become very susceptible to making wicked choices. And so Ahab, because he's in this stubborn mindset, he's got a stubborn heart toward the Lord when the Lord corrects him, instead of recognizing the wrong he did by trying to profit by not putting a deserving person to death, next he's going to decide to seek his own profit again by putting an innocent man to death. So chapter 21, verse 1, it says, And it came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard, which was in Jezreel, hard by the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And Ahab spoke unto Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a garden of herbs, because it's near to my house. And I'll give it to you. I'll get, I will give you for it a better vineyard than it, or if it seems good to you, I'll give you its worth in money. And Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid it me that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto you. So here's the setting. This is right after Israel's massive victory and Ahab's stubborn anger toward God. And Ahab's palace, it was in Samaria, but we saw in chapter 18 that he had a, a residence in Jezreel. Most people believe it was like his summer residence. Naboth's vineyard was very close to this getaway that Ahab had, and Ahab wanted it for himself. I guess he liked to garden. Verse 2 tells us that when he goes to talk to him, Ahab offers Naboth a fair deal. But the problem is, to an Israelite, land was your personal inheritance from God. It's not like you and I when we buy a piece of property and we're like, well, I got it from Joe Smith and now it's mine. And I can maybe improve the property or if I'm with it long enough, I can make money off it and it's an investment. To Israelites, one's land was holy. It was not something that you could barter with or sell. And if you, you did, there was a law in Israel that the land would always revert back to you by a certain time period because the land was to stay with your family because it wasn't given by men, it was given by the Lord. And so Naboth tells him, the Lord forbid me. You think, what a harsh reaction, like the Lord forbid me. But Ahab is ignoring God's law and his inheritance. You might be the king, but you're not the Lord. And so he says, the Lord forbid me from doing this. The, the phrase forbid here, it means this is a reprehensible thing. This is a profane concept. This is how the pagans think, Ahab. Naboth was a faithful worshiper of Jehovah, which, by the way, is another sign that Elijah was wrong about being the only one left. He says, Ahab you're treating my inheritance like a pagan would, an unbeliever would. Even if I would consider giving it to someone for some noble purpose, I could never give it to someone who thinks like you do. This is more than just a refusal. It's a rebuke. You see, the kings in Israel were never so powerful that they were allowed to violate God's law. And Naboth lets Ahab know it's not about the fairness of your offer, but the attitude you've displayed to the Lord in even asking me. And so, to just to kind of start the whole chapter off, it is a, a good question to ask ourselves, you know, what is my attitude toward the Lord? Do I ignore His commands when I see an opportunity for profit? Do I treat others as if God's commands are, they can be ignored or circumvented in some way? This is especially important for people who are leaders. 
I have at times been in conversations with leaders who, of all sorts, not just church leaders and stuff, but I've been in conversation with leaders, and whether they, they were in their work environment or even in the government, and they see themselves above those that they lead. We can never see ourselves that way, as if God's okay with us making decisions without listening to the Lord's input or even their input. It's hard, okay? Like, life is weird right now. But, and seriously, like, like, life is just weird right now, okay? So, you know, we've got a culture that's, you know, trying to, to find its way, and it's not working, but we're, it's trying to find its way, and, and that's not abnormal in and of itself. But in particular, we've, we've got a culture right now that's trying to find its way as it regards marriage and family, okay? And, and so you've got this whole idea of, okay, we recognize that there are some serious, serious shortcomings to the concepts of uh, male leadership and, and the idea of a husband leading his family. Like we, we, we definitely look at history and we can see, okay, ladies, you, you definitely have been you know, mistreated, you've been wronged, you've been stepped on, you've not been valued correctly. But what we've done is, in, in our current culture, is we've, we've seen this, the problems, and rather than just correct the problems and get back to God's Word, what we've done is we've said, well, we just got to throw that whole idea out. And it's like, okay, so, so what are you left with there then? You're left with chaos. You're, la- you're left with a lack of submission to God in a different way. You just went from one side of wrong to all the way to the other side of wrong instead of landing on the truth. So it is confusing sometimes, particularly, and I'm not trying, I know it's confusing for you too, ladies, but, but it's confusing sometimes for like a young Christian man growing up in this culture, because you feel this tug of like, you're like, well, the Bible says this, but like everybody else is saying this. And so you can find yourself, because like, well, I don't want to be like what the world is saying. So then you, you run to this other extreme where you, you say, well, I'm the head of this house. I, I, I'm going to lead my family. Or you say, well, I know that's not right. I run, and then you run to the other extreme. And so it is extremely common when ministering to couples these days to have to sit down and explain to them that marriage is a partnership. It's a partnership. Like you don't have the right because God's called you to lead your family, which he has. You don't have the right to dismiss the thoughts of your partner who is God has given to you for your sanctification to help you make choices. Like you don't just get to, to dismiss that. And, and here's the reality, mom and dad. If you have believing kids, you also don't get the right to dismiss it when they're saying, hey, mom, dad, the word says this. Why are you doing this? I, oh, I would hate it. We, me and Bev, we, we're, we are feisty. So we had, we had a rule. You don't fight in front of the kids. That's a awesome rule. You, you should have that rule, okay? but we are flawed people. And so there were times when it can just kind of, you know, the fire just all cut. What is it like when you throw like the, the uh, what's the stuff you squirt on the charcoal to make, I don't remember what it's called, but yeah, lighter fluid, whatever. And you know, and all of a sudden you just whoosh, you know, and well, me and Bev are a little feisty. And so there are times when it can just happen like that and just whoosh. And the kids are all just like, cause we don't normally do that. So the kids are like, what in the world's going on? Every once in a while, one of us is stubborn enough to kind of keep throwing lighter fluid onto the flame. And usually at that point, one of the kids, because they, they're like, dude, this is sin. They'd be like, dad, you're totally disobeying God. And you're like, yeah, and I can pick you up and throw you out the window. <laughs> That's wrong, you know. <laughs> There'd be times when, you know, Bev, they would go to her and you'd be like, mommy, you, you shouldn't talk to daddy like that. And like, that's something you need to take to heart. I'm dealing with the marriage and the family relationship, but, but the truth is this works in every relationship we have. I don't get to look at any individual and go, what you think about what I do doesn't matter. When we take that mindset that what you think about what I do doesn't matter because I know I'm right or this is what I want or whatever it might be, all the various reasons we have in our head. When we 
are circumventing this concept of, of loving one another, treating one another, preferring one another, with, uh, treating one another with dignity and respect, preferring one another, like the Scripture says, when we ignore that and we try to circumvent God's commands, we try to, to ignore God's commands, it is so important if you're in a position of authority to never do that. I'm very, I'm very cognizant of the fact that when I say something in this building, it's way different than if someone else does, which means I can't just say whatever I want. I challenge our leadership here, and I'll be like, listen, you, you can't say that because you're not just representing you. You're not just sharing your opinion. You're speaking for everybody here. And ultimately, that means you're speaking for Jesus. Now, obviously, it's not the entirely same situation in a work environment or if you're serving the government in some way, but it is similar. You represent the Lord. You are leading people. You're in a position where you can, you're in a position where someone else can be taken advantage of because of your authority, which means you have to wield that authority with an incredible amount of humility. We cannot see ourselves above those we lead, and we cannot make decisions without listening to their input or, or, or thinking about what the Lord thinks about what we want to do. Well, instead of repenting, Ahab goes home and he throws a fit. It says that Ahab came into his house heavy and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my father's. And he laid himself down in his bed and turned away his face and would eat no bread. It's tough being Ahab. The word there, heavy and, and displeased. Heavy means stubborn, resentful, sulky, bad-tempered, displeased. That's a very light word for what it really means. It means raging, angry. He was a maelstrom inside. <clears throat> he was angry. And why is Ahab angry and upset? Why is he sulky? It tells us because of the words, not because he wouldn't sell to him, because of the words he spoke, because he rebuked him. All Naboth was doing was repeating God's words in his law. And that's the part that made Ahab so upset. God is always against me. God isn't okay with anything I want to do. He's always against me. He's always sending somebody to correct me. He's always sending somebody to tell me that what I'm doing isn't right. And then Ahab does the worst thing that you can do when you're angry at God. Well, maybe not the worst thing, but it's not a good thing. He talks to nobody. He doesn't bring anybody else into his situation who can say, Ahab, you're kind of being a jerk here. I don't, I don't think anyone ever wants to hear those words. But, you know, I have come to people at times say, listen, here's a scenario. This is what's going on. Tell me, am I being a jerk? You're being a jerk, Will. Okay. I was wondering, didn't think I was, but I needed another, another opinion here. You know, yeah, you're kind, of, you're kind of being selfish. You're kind of being insensitive. You're kind of lacking compassion. You're not, God does say this. Why are you thinking this way? Oh, man, you're right. When we stew there in our own thoughts, there's reasons. Ahab doesn't talk to any of his advisors because if he knows he goes to them, they're going to go, why are you surprised, dude? You know, I mean, he's not wrong. And he knows if he goes and he talks to his wife, she's just going to mock him over God's laws. She's going to tell us, this is why I told you to crush Jehovah worship, but you didn't listen to me. He's going to keep you from being the king you want to be. Ahab doesn't go to anyone because none of them are going to tell him what he wants to hear. And that is a very dangerous place to be. Because when I'm alone when I won't listen to anybody who won't tell me what I want to hear, I start seeing things through a very limited lens. And that limited lens starts to corrupt facts to a point that I close myself off from the light of God's correction. And so in verse 5, it says, But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said unto him, Why is your spirit so sad that you eat no bread? And he said unto her, because I spoke unto Naboth the Jezreelite and said unto him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. That's not true, Ahab. That's not even close to the truth, dude. But that's what happens when we, we close ourselves off 
And the only person we're listening to is ourselves. Ahab, you've turned this into a personal attack against you instead of Nahab's unwillingness to go along with your willingness to disobey God. Now, Ahab either leaves this out on purpose because he knows Jezebel's going to be like, really, that's why you're upset? Or it's because he's convinced himself the facts aren't the facts. Either way, his incorrect portrayal of the situation opens the door for Jezebel to do Jezebel things. Look at verse 7. Jezebel, his wife, said unto him, Do you now govern the kingdom of Israel? Arise and eat bread. Let your heart be merry. I'll give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. She's mocking him here. The, the phrase, do you now govern, is, is literally, is, is this how things work in Israel? Is this how kings reign in Israel? By asking your subjects for things? You see, Jezebel was used to, her dad was the king of Tyre and Sidon. She was used to the despotic practices of the Phoenician and the Canaanite kings who used their power to do whatever they pleased. And she senses that Ahab lacks the courage or the willpower to use his power to take what he wants. Can we just pause for a second, and can I say to any of you single men out there, or ladies, if, if you've got a call of God on your life, any of you men who've got a call of God on your life, or any of you single women who've got a call upon your life, the man or the woman you marry will be the most important decision you make, because they will either join you in that journey, or they will stumble you in it. Now, men just you this time. That isn't an excuse. If you have a wife you think who's not on the journey of ministry or leadership with you, that is not an excuse for those of you who are married. And since you aren't doing what God called you to do, to just pout and sulk or blame them, what God has called you to do is to lead your wife, not sulk in bed like Ahab, nor twist the facts like Ahab. God has called you to engage with your bride, to love your bride, to serve your bride, and to show her by your commitment to her that Jesus is worth following wherever he leads you. It's not your job to tell her what God's told you to do. It's your job to show her that God is worth trusting no matter what he tells you guys together to do. That's your job. Well, Jezebel comforts Ahab by saying, I know things, how things are supposed to work for a king. I'll take care of this little problem for you. So verse 8, this is a sad section of Scripture. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, and she sealed them with his seal, making them official orders, and sent the letters unto the elders and to the nobles that were in the city dwelling with Naboth. And she wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast, and set Naboth on high among the people, and set two men, sons of Belial, before him to bear witness against him, saying, You did blaspheme God and the king. And then carry him out and stone him that he may die. She writes to the elders and the nobles. So these would be the leaders that governed official things uh, in the local area. And, And she says, declare a citywide fast. Now, the reason you declare a citywide fast is because you want to avoid some type of impending judgment from God. Uh, Remember when Jonah went to Nineveh and he said, 40 days in judgment, and the king of Nineveh proclaimed a fast. Maybe God will forgive us. Maybe if we repent and we fast and we seek his face, maybe he'll forgive us. Similar thing here. So so the idea is they're going to declare a fast, and immediately everyone in the Jezreel area is going to be on high alert. What did we do to incur God's wrath? What's going to happen? Who's responsible? What do we need to do to fix things? See, Jezebel tells these guys to create the impression that a disaster is coming that can only be averted if they humble themselves before the Lord and remove any person whose sin brought God's judgment on them. And then, when that's all done, it's the perfect setup. As everybody's gathered to kind of seek the Lord, bring Naboth and set him in the the guilty chair. Put him there in the high seat, in the guilty seat, and then have these two men find these two guys who are sons of Belial. The the phrase there is, it's a pretty broad meaning, um, but it just means wicked men, troublemakers, lawbreakers. Find two guys who are in trouble with the law and offer them a deal. Offer him a deal. You testify against this guy, say he blasphemed the Lord and he blasphemed the king and all your legal troubles will go away. You see, the law of Moses had certain things that required the death penalty. They were capital crimes, blasphemy being one of them. 
But Deuteronomy 17.6 makes it clear that it cannot be the testimony of one person. You had to have at least two witnesses to render a guilty verdict for a capital crime. And so get these two guys to testify, and when you render a guilty verdict, you take them out, have the people kill them, stone them to death. And then problem solved. And sadly, her plan works perfectly. Look at verse 11. And the men of his city, even the elders and the nobles who were the inhabitants in his city, did as Jezebel had sent unto them. And as it was written in the letters which she had sent unto them, they proclaimed a fast, and they put Naboth in the, in the guilty chair on high among the people. And there came in two men, children of Belial, who sat before him. And the men of Belial witnessed against him, even against Naboth, in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth, we heard him. Naboth did blaspheme God and the king. So guilty. They carried him out forth out of the city, and they stoned him with stones that he died. Multiple parts of this fiasco blow me away. First off, the absolute lack of any fear of God on Jezebel's part. If there is a character trait that I could, I could say, what, what, how would you describe Jezebel? I would say an absolute zero percent fear of God. She just never seems to have any fear of God. Like all her prophets have just been killed. Her husband says, I saw fire come down from heaven. And she's like, let me type out this email to Elijah. If you're not dead tomorrow by this time, may the gods kill me. Absolutely no fear of the Lord. And what's crazy is she is not some ignorant fool. She knows enough about God's law and has no problems about using it deceptively. When we look at Jezebel here, this is a person who really and truly does not care what the Lord thinks. Doesn't care. Does what God thinks matter to you? Do you love what he loves and hate what he hates? That's what the fear of the Lord is. Don't be like Jezebel. Love what God loves, hate what he hates. What God thinks and what he's communicated, let it matter to you. The second thing that blows me away is how these local leaders are perfectly fine when they get these letters. They're totally fine with twisting justice to commit murder. And it doesn't indicate that she gives any reason, like why? They're just ready to go along with this fiasco. Now, I realize that Ahab is the king, but somebody should have stood up and said, this is wrong. We're not going to do this. But no one did. If you are a leader of any kind, especially if you're involved in decisions that affect like a person's quality of life, you had better fear God. You had better fear God. Numbers 18.21, when... That may not be the right chapter. Yeah, that's not it. It's Exodus 18.20. I'm like, I, don't, I didn't think I was going to Numbers. Exodus 18.21, when Jethro is giving counsel to Moses about, Moses, you, you're doing this all by yourself, and that's not good. You need other leaders who, you can, you know, who can do this. And the first character trait, it says, and it shall be, moreover, you shall provide out of all the people able men such as fear God. Like, that's the, the most important character trait if you're choosing who's going to be a judge or a governing leader. Do they have any fear of God? Because if they don't have a fear of God, they're going to make poor decisions. I don't care which party ticket they're running under. If they don't have a fear of God, they're going to make poor decisions. Romans 13 verse 7 tells us that we're to give every, to every person their due based on their position in society. It says to give, uh, well, I'll read it to you. I don't have that one memorized, so. I'll get all the order wrong. Render, therefore, to all their dues. Tribute to whom tribute. Give your taxes to the IRS. Custom to whom custom. Fear unto whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Don't whine about the price of whatever you're paying for. When you go to eat it, you went in there. You owe them. That's what your bill is. You owe it. Pay it. Render honor to the, you know, if the honors due them because of their governing position or they're your boss, give them honor. But... If those in authority in society ever ask us to disobey God, then we must say what the disciples did in Acts 4.19, which is, 
You decide if it's better to obey God, better to obey you or to obey the Lord. The clear answer is we need to obey the Lord. I've in the work environment I've had two or three times a boss asked me to do something illegal. And I've respectfully pulled them aside. I didn't pitch a fit in public. I just respectfully said, hey, can we talk? Pulled them aside. I said, listen, I, I can't do this. You're asking me to lie. And that's like, I'm not going to lie for you. I was like, I, I'm not saying I'm better than you, but I fear God. And so I'm not going to lie for you. I would rather lose my job than lie for you. Or I had two other things that were asked that were illegal. And I, I said, I, I will not do this. Now, the last thing that blows me away is these troublemakers. The old adage, probably heard by your mom, two wrongs don't make a right. The only thing you can do worse than when you commit one wrong is to try to get out of the consequences by committing a second wrong. A man is going to die so these guys can have their debts canceled or their crimes expunged. Now, that's exactly what happened on the cross, right? But Jesus signed up for that job. Naboth did not. So these two men are just as guilty of murder as Jezebel and the city leaders. You know, Jezebel mocked her husband for not having the courage to act like a king, but no one had the courage to stand up for Naboth. That's what true leaders do. Those men are rare these days. These days it seems like the most courageous thing you can do is put something on your phone while the horrible thing's happening rather than jump in and stop it. I'm not for foolishness. I'm not for frivolity when it concerns safety. But if there's anything, if there's one thing, there's many things I could say about our culture and the prosperity we have is our lives are way too precious to ourselves. Way too precious to ourselves. So, Naboth dies. They take him out and stone him, and he died. Good people, people who love the Lord, people who have done nothing wrong, they do lose their lives or experience persecution at the hands of deceptive, wicked people. Now, does that mean that God failed to protect those who love him? Well, God can't fail, and God never makes a mistake, so... We need to find another answer to that question. Look at Romans 8 with me. I love Romans 8. There's so many good reasons to love Romans 8. And most Christians love some of the sections I'm going to read here in Romans 8. Problem is, is there's a few other little statements in between some of those favorite sections that we don't tend to quote so much. But in Romans 8, verse 35 it says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or darkness or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? What an awesome thing. Like when we ask the question, like, did God fail when a brother or sister in Christ loses their life or is being persecuted for their faith? Like, did God fail? Did he not come to their aid? Let's pause for a time out here. The Bible's very clear. What shall separate us from the love of God? None of those things. None of those things. And what a beautiful promise, right? Like, no matter what's going on in my life, no matter how crazy things are, how many wrong things are being done to me, or how hard things are, God still loves me. Like, his heart is toward me. I can know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. And we love to stand on that promise. But then look at verse 36. As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. That's not the verse we usually find on a fridge, right? Like, that's not the verse you say, man, I'm really struggling today. It's been a rough day. Like, I, you know, I don't know if I can hang on. It's all right, brother. It's all right, sister. For, your, for God's sake, we're killed all the day long. We're like accounted as sheep to the slaughter. God bless you. <laughs> oh, I'm blocking that dude, you know. But Paul says, nay, can anything separate us from the No. In all these things, we're more than conquerors. Literally, we're super conquerors through him that loved us. Even in death, we win. For Paul says, here's why. Because I'm persuaded 
that neither death nor life, angels, principalities, powers, nor things present nor things to come, height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is still for, and God still loves his saints when they experience persecution or even death at the hands of the wicked. Not a single injustice that is done separates us from his love. Verse 36 is a quote from Psalm 44. And Psalm 44 is interesting because he, he's writing from the perspective of Israel's going through really rough times. And he's like, Lord, why? I can see why like three generations ago when we were in idolatry, but like, Lord, we're serving you. Like, we're faithful to you right now. Why are we going through this? He says, Lord, I would understand it if we had forsaken you, but we didn't. Why is this happening to us? Wake up, Lord, and help us. What Paul says here in Romans 8 is, God is not sleeping, and he does care. Psalm 116, verse 15, the writer talks about how God delivered him from a great, horrible death. He was was done for. But it says this, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. This is the conclusion the psalmist came to, that when someone who is faithful to God dies or is mistreated, it's of high value to the Lord. In other words, if it's of high value to the Lord, God doesn't allow it to happen lightly. The songwriter who wrote Psalm 116, he wrote it because God had rescued him from death at the hands of the wicked, but he recognizes the Lord doesn't always do so which means if God doesn't stop it from happening, there is some purpose at work in his own wisdom that allows it, but it it doesn't mean that he failed or that he stopped loving us. Now, let's have real conversation here, guys. If that answer isn't good enough for you, I don't know what else to tell you. I don't know what else to say. I'm not the Lord. Either we believe that God is smarter and he's wiser than us, or we do not. And if I believe I am wiser than an all-knowing God, I think that's a problem in and of itself. Well, back in 1 Kings 21, verse 14, Jezebel is all happy, got a present for Ahab. So then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth is stoned and is dead. And it came to pass when Jezebel heard that Naboth was stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise! Get out of bed, dude. Stop being sulky. Take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And it came to pass when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead that Ahab rose up to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. I don't know how much Ahab knew, but when Jezebel tells him that Naboth is dead, he doesn't ask. He doesn't object. He doesn't call her out. He finally gets up from his sulking, and he goes to lay claim to the vineyard. When an Israelite dies, even if he's a criminal, his land passes to his immediate family. If there's no immediate family, the first right of claim goes to the nearest of kin, and then if he doesn't want it, it goes to the nearest of kin. If he doesn't want it, it goes, it keeps going down to whoever's closest in family ties until someone finally claims it. That Ahab just simply claims this land as his own is a serious crime in Israel in addition to doing nothing about Naboth's murder. In Deuteronomy 19.14, it says this. I used to read this as a kid and be like, what's the big deal? You shall not remove your neighbor's landmark. Some of y'all are like, amen, I can't stand my neighbor. You know, you put this fence over here and that's my land. But it's not quite the same. We don't view land again the same way that an Israelite did. This is my God-given inheritance. And I've, so I've got rocks or, or things there that, are, are, you know, that establish this is what God gave to me and my family. And so the Lord said, don't move those markers, those boundaries that show that that's his land. Don't take the rocks and be like, I need more land for my cows. I'm moving it, you know, 60 feet over here. Don't do that because God gave it to him. Nobody else but the Lord. Changing the borders of someone's land so that your land, their land was now yours was a crime in Israel. Committing it came with a curse. In Deuteronomy 27, verse 7, 
That's how serious the Lord took it. Deuteronomy 27, verse 7. Oh, that's not right. What is it? 17? This is why you don't, don't do your uh, notes when you have a fever. So. <laughs> Cursed be he that removes his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say amen. They, I mean, this was important enough to God that when they were in, you know, half the tribes were in Mount Ebal and the other half were in Mount Gerizim, and they were calling down the blessings and the curses, this was in the curses. Ahab's problem, though, is he, he never cared what God said. And that refusal to change, his, that stubbornness that's in his heart, God finally says, all right, Ahab, enough's enough. And so it brings God's judgment upon him. Look at verse 17. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, which is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he's gone down to possess it. And thus shall you speak unto him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall speak unto him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs lick the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your blood, even yours. Now, this is cool because Elijah's been off the scene for a while, right? So all of a sudden we see Elijah, he's, he's back to where he's supposed to be. He's getting instructions from God and he's following those instructions. That's how we first met him. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Everything Elijah did was because the word of the Lord. And then the one time he gets away from the Lord is because he doesn't find out what the Lord wants him to do. But here he's back again, serving the Lord, listening to the Lord's instructions. Listen, I don't care what anybody else tells you. The Bible's clear that God can still use a person after they fail. God can even restore a person to the same level of usefulness after they fail. But that return to usefulness requires a return to the obedience they had before they failed. Note, being used again after you fail isn't about gifting or even anointing. It's about repentance and obedience. Well, the Lord tells me, he says, Elijah, go down, which means, remember, down and up is elevation in the Bible almost all the time. So Elijah was likely back in his old stomping grounds, those you know, hills in the east of the Galilee region. He's probably back out there with his peeps, the mountain men. He's serving them. And the Lord says, I need you to get back down into city life, bro. Go, down into, go back down into Samaria. Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, which is in Samaria. The Hebrew implies which he's normally in Samaria, but he's not now. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, which he's gone down to possess it, and then say these words. Is it enough? Wasn't enough to commit murder, but now you're also going to break God's law by theft? The whole concept of asking that question is, Ahab, did you really think that God wouldn't know? Did you really think that you were going to get away with it? So Ahab... God has been being gracious with you over and over and over again. He's been reaching out to you over and over and over again. You've crossed the line. Ahab, you're going to experience the same fate that Naboth did. And God pronounces judgments like this because it's what, deser- it's what is deserved. But God also does pronounces judgments like this to call us to repentance. The danger of a stubborn heart Instead of, is that instead of seeing when that happens, when I have a stubborn heart, is that instead of seeing God reaching out his hand to me, I see an enemy who just wants to destroy me. Look at Ahab's response in verse 20. And Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? It's hard for me to read those words because I've not heard those exact words from people that all I've done is just love them but I've heard words like it. I've heard words like it and for the same reason. The words sting because I've heard them from people I've loved and served for years, but then I bring in, uh, to attention, attention to an area of their life that needs to change and all that goodwill's gone. Years of friendship, years of just pouring and serving, giving time and energy, it's all gone the minute you tell them, hey, you're not really being obedient to the Lord here, or hey, you need to, you need to submit to the Lord here. Paul received this treatment from the Galatians Christians who had gotten involved in legalism in Galatians chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. 
Paul said, you know how through infirmity of my flesh I preached the gospel unto you at first, and my temptation which was in my flesh you did not despise nor reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. But then he says, that's how things used to be. Where is that blessedness you spoke of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible back then, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Elijah never treated Ahab like an enemy. Never. And Elijah had lots of reasons to treat Ahab like an enemy. But he never, ever treated Ahab like an enemy. In fact, from 1 Kings chapter 17, when Elijah comes onto the scene, all the way up to this point, Elijah has always acted in Ahab's best interest. Always. When, when no one else is with Ahab and he's on his chariot in the middle of a rainstorm because rain hasn't been in the land for three and a half years, who's standing by his side? It's Elijah. He did nothing to deserve this accusation. Nothing. So I ask you tonight, do you see a brother or a sister in Christ as an enemy because they called you out on wrong behavior? We read in Proverbs 27 in our scripture reading, in verses five and six, open rebuke is better than secret love or concealed love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Some of the hardest things I've ever had to hear have come from some of my closest friends. Some of the hardest things I've ever had to hear have come from my wife or my own kids. I'm so grateful for that. Did it feel good to hear that you're a loser or a failure or you're not following the Lord? Of course, nobody feels good when you hear that. But faithful are the wounds of a friend. If you seeing a brother or sister as an enemy right now because they've called you out on something. Stop being like Ahab. Stop being stubborn. Stop seeing those who are for you as against you. And this includes the Lord, by the way. We have numerous examples in Scripture of time when the Lord rebuked people and they just got mad. To kind of have that attitude like Ahab is here. Why are you always against me? Why is nothing I do good enough? Why can't you bless anything I want to do? I'm human like the rest of you. There are times when life is frustrating. There are times when you look at a situation and you go, God, I would not have picked this scenario. But as I just start to think about how good God's been to me, there's no way on earth I could ever accuse him of wrongdoing. No way. I don't deserve to be breathing right now. And God, I'm not just breathing. I'm living in the massive blessings of, of Christ. No matter what comes my way now, no matter how much disappointment I could ever experience, my future is amazing. And if I'm honest with myself, my present is really good. Well, Elijah's response is powerful. He says, I have found you. The word found there, it means to meet or encounter. Did you just come to meet with me, my enemy? He goes, I did come to meet with you, but not because I'm your enemy. He says, I came to meet with you, he says, because you have sold yourself to work evil in the sight of the Lord. The word sold yourself, it means to give up, to surrender. It's a, the word has the same concept of mind when someone becomes a bond slave, when they say, I love my master, I want to get my ear pierced, I want to be his servant for life. Ahab, I have come to meet you because you willingly gave yourself to be a bond slave, not to the Lord, but to do evil. I didn't come to meet you because I'm your enemy, but because you sold yourself out to do evil things. I've never been your enemy, but you have chosen to be the Lord's enemy. Everybody serves someone. Everybody does. I'm either a slave to, uh, to Jesus or I'm a slave to sin. And Ahab chose sin. And you can't persist in choosing to serve sin without experiencing judgment. And so verse 21 
Elijah pronounces it, behold, I will bring evil, not in the sense of like wickedness or wrong, but disaster, ruin, harm. I'm going to bring ruin, disaster, harm upon you, and I'm going to take away your posterity. I will cut off from Ahab him that urinates against the wall, him that shut up and left in Israel. In other words, every kind of male descendant is going to be swept away, is going to be exterminated, Ahab. Wherever your male descendants are, Ahab, the Lord's going to find them, and he's going to bury them in the ground just like a man does with his waist just like God did with the lines of Jeroboam and Baasha. Verse 22, I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like, pardon me, the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the provocation wherewith you have provoked me to anger, and you've made Israel to sin. And the Lord doesn't stop there with Ahab and his descendants. He goes, Jezebel's going to get it too. He says, and of Jezebel also he spoke, spoke the Lord, saying, the dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Him that dies of Ahab in the city, the dog shall eat, and him that dies in the field shall the fowls of the air eat. That's not what you want to hear from the Lord. Like, that's, that's not how you want to go home. How was work, honey? Well, <laughs> prophet came to talk to me, and it's not good news. This is a horrible ending for Ahab, for Jezebel, and their, their children and their children's children. But God has given each of them opportunity after opportunity to repent. And eventually, if you don't, God has to do something. And the writer points that out next. Look at verse 25 and 26. It's kind of a pause in the narrative, and he just gives some explanation. He says, but there was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel, his wife, stirred up. He did very abominably in following idols according to all the things as did the Amorites whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. He was doing the same exact things that caused God's judgment to come upon the Canaanites. Ahab experienced this judgment because he wasn't a guy who struggled in his walk with the Lord. Ahab was a guy who stubbornly refused time and time again to submit to the Lord and instead chose to submit himself to sin. And his wife she instigated it or incited it in him. Anytime he was even feeling conviction about not doing the wrong thing, she would stir him up and tempt him, or, or the word there means to tempt by power or charm to do the wrong thing. You see, Jezebel wasn't a woman who just did some bad things. She urged Ahab to rebel against the Lord. She urged Ahab to give his life to serve sin, and so she will share in his judgment. Well, verse 27 And it came to pass when Ahab heard those words that he tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his flesh, fasted, and lay in sackcloth. And then King James says he went softly, which means to tread lightly like like you're in deep trouble. You know, every once in a while, you know, with the kids, they're, they're in deep trouble. You know, from now on, they're like, hello, mother, can I do anything for you today? That's kind of where Ahab's at right now. Before he's making choices for the first time ever, Ahab experiences sincere remorse for what he's done. Remember his reaction the last time God pronounced judgment when he said, since you let the king of Syria go, your life will go for his. You're going to lose your life in battle, just like he was supposed to. He went home and he was angry, angry at God. These words from God were so heavy that he finally took God seriously. He finally experiences sincere remorse for what he'd done. And that sincere remorse... It it leads him to humble himself before God, where when he's making decisions, he starts thinking about what God might think of them. Now, remorse and humility are not the same thing as repentance. They are not. He's just trying to stay out of trouble, hoping that that might be enough to placate the Lord. And so in that, Ahab is still stubborn. He's still asserting his own way of thinking, thinking that he can somehow make up for what he had done, and therefore refusing to change his heart. And so while his remorse and humility are sincere, they do not last. We're going to see him right back to rebelling against the Lord later on. But here's the crazy part. It does arouse God's mercy. Look at verse 27. came to pass when Ahab heard those words, he did this, verse 28, I'm sorry. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tispite, saying, Do you see how Ahab humbles himself before me? Because he humbles himself before me, I will not bring the evil, the calamity I pronounced against his descendants and against his wife. He won't see it. It won't happen in his days. 
but in his son's days I will bring the evil upon his house. The word here for humbles himself, it means to have a proper attitude towards authority. This is the first time Ahab's actually treated God like he was the Lord. He says, you see how Ahab recognizes my authority now? The judgment's still coming, but I'm going to spare him from seeing the majority of it. God's heart is toward unbelievers. In both judgment and mercy, he's seeking to draw them to repentance, even though they won't come. God loved Ahab. And I can say that without any doubt. Now, if that's true, which it is, and Ahab was the evilest king that Israel had had, then that means I can say God loves all unbelievers and he desires to draw them to repentance too. God's judgment is never arbitrary. It comes upon those who repeatedly reject his kindness and his mercy. You can read Romans chapter two, verses four through eight, and it talks about that. It says, what, do you, do you, you, know, do you kind of uh, look lightly upon God's mercy and kindness towards you that he hasn't judged you yet? And so I ask you tonight as our one-man band comes up to lead us, Do you realize how much the Lord loves you? Like, I don't know where y'all are tonight. I know lots of faces, but some I don't. I don't know where you're at with the Lord tonight. Do you realize how much God loves you? And if your heart has been stubborn toward him, will you stop being like Ahab? Because God doesn't want to discipline you. He doesn't want to judge you. He wants to show you mercy. Amen? Let's all stand. Lord, you are an awesome, holy God. And Lord, we need to fear you. We need to love what you love, hate what you hate. We need to not ignore what you say in our treatment of other people, like Ahab did. But Lord, all of that was a root of something that was deeper in Ahab's heart, and we don't want that in our heart. So God, show us if there's that stubbornness in our hearts, maybe not just towards you in general, but maybe it's toward a specific topic in general. Maybe it's toward a specific behavior in general that we've just been stubborn. Lord, show us how much you love us. Show us how worth it it is to just surrender to you and to follow you. And Lord, for anyone right now who's saying, Lord, I'm yielding this to you. I don't want to be stubborn anymore. I don't want to not receive correction from others. I don't want to, I don't want to push that people away. I don't want to see people as my enemy who, who have you know, brought to light my behavior that doesn't please you. Lord, whatever it is that someone might be saying, Lord, I'm yielding this to you tonight, would you fill them with your Holy Spirit and empower them to walk in obedience in that area, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.